Good afternoon and welcome to our first session of the Oxford Political Thought Seminar with myself, Samuel Azami and Faisal Devji, who are the co-conveners of a series of seminars that discuss political thought in an Islamicate register. We cover everything from pre-modern to modern Islam, and we are delighted to invite some of the world's leading authorities on Islamic thought. And they usually join us in pairs discussing contemporary Islamic and medieval Islamic political thought, followed by a discussion. And this week, I'm really absolutely delighted to be able to welcome Valerie Hoffman, Emeritus Professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And uh, she is a specialist on a range of areas and covers has covered a very broad array of eras and uh, <laughs> also engaged in a considerable amount of ethnographic, ethnographic work, um, particularly in Egypt, uh, but also in uh, sort of on the coast of Africa, Zanzibar, and is today here to speak about Ibadism. So this week's seminar is uh, on the theme of dissent. And Valerie is speaking on charges of radicalism, Ibadi Wahhabi polemics, and the articulation of identity. She is, of course, one of the world's leading authorities on Ibadi Islam, a branch of Islam which is very often understudied and undertaught as well. And I'm sure your students will not be able to complain that uh, at the <laughs> University of Illinois. But uh, with that, we're really delighted to have you, Valerie, and we really look forward to your presentation. And then uh, Faisal, my co-convener, and I will join you in a discussion thereafter. For any audience members, I would like to um, just remind you that uh, you're more than welcome to ask questions uh, in the chat. Those will show up for me, and I will put them to Valerie in the um, sort of latter half of this um, discussion. Um, I would really take advantage of this because we are very fortunate just to have Valerie this week, so there's plenty of time for discussion. And we look forward to seeing you every two weeks uh, during term time. But I would like to first thank again Valerie for uh, making the time and you can take it from here. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's really a, an honor to be speaking uh, with you. So I'm going to begin by uh, recalling some violent incidents that occurred in the Mazab Valley, Algeria, which is one of the North African enclaves of where Ibadi communities remain um, from November 2013 to April 2014 and then again in March 2015. Multiple violent incidents that resulted in uh, more than 20 deaths, scores of people wounded, the desecration of Ibadi tombs, and the burning of many shops and homes and forcing hundreds of families to flee. And of course, damaging the livelihood of uh, many people, particularly Ibadi merchants. So these incidents, which are known as Ahdath Gardea, Gardea being both the name of the province where it occurs as well as the uh, capital city of that province, were described by the media as ethno-sectarian violence between Ibadi Amazigh and uh, Maliki Arabs. Now, many writers disputed the idea that it, that it really was ethno-sectarian violence because 
Ibadis and Malikis had enjoyed peaceful coexistence for centuries. And so there were other explanations offered, economic and political changes that caused various problems. Some blamed criminal elements from a, a, a part of the town of Rardeo, which is popularly called Mexico because of the power of local drug cartels. But all of that raises the question of why would violence occur at this particular point in time in particular. And so many writers, you know, thought that foreign hands were involved in trying to to damage Algerian national unity at a time when there was a lot of sectarian violence in some other countries of the Muslim world, while others said this is typical deflection of blame uh, from a problem that is really homegrown. So another explanation was that the incidents were actually engineered by the government in preparation for the presidential election in April 2014, in which Abdul Aziz Bouteflika was running for a fourth term as president, even though he had had a stroke in 2013. And the violence was meant to strike fear in the local population and convince them that they can only be safe if the current regime is reelected. So I and eyewitnesses spoke of the complicity of police and security forces who encouraged criminal elements to attack Ibadi homes and businesses and helped them by tossing tear gas canisters into houses, standing by idly while um, uh, Malikis entered an Ibadi mosque um, and announced over loudspeakers from the mosque a jihad against the Ibadis. So, suspicions of the government's culpability seem to be confirmed by the fact that the violence ended abruptly on April 17th, 2014, the day of the presidential election. So as we know, sectarian violence can never be reduced to a single cause. So more than one of these explanations is plausible. But for purposes of this talk, because I'm talking about Ibadi Wahhabi polemics, I'm going to focus on one explanation in particular, and that was that some people said Salafi sheikhs stirred up hatred for Ibadis. Now, I should just pause and say that in this talk, I'm sort of, uh, I'm using Wahhabi when I'm specifically referring to, to Saudis. I realize that Wahhabis don't like to be called Wahhabis. They call themselves Salafis. But the word Salafi has many different meanings, right? But when we have sheikhs in Algeria who identify with the ideology of Saudi Arabia, they are typically called Salafi, right, rather than Wahhabi. So I just recognize that the appellations can be complicated. But in any case, the Saudi-owned uh, channel Iqra was uh, blamed for disseminating hatred in Algeria. At the end of October 2013, a conference was held in Amman, Jordan uh, on the topic, the Khawarij and their persistence until the time of the Antichrist, a Dajjal. <laughs> and of course, this language is uh, drawn from Hadith, right? So it, it was about what does it all mean? And this program, which was broadcast on Iqra, in this program, 
an Algerian sheikh identified the Ibadis as the Khawarij of our time, describing them as unbelievers beyond the pale of uh, the Ummah and the Mila. I mean, they're just not beyond the pale of proper Islamic belief, but they're not even in the Ummah of Islam. And citing proof texts from Hadith that allow the shedding of their blood, the violation of their women, and the plunder of their property. So one Algerian reporter wrote from the first time this was broadcast a month ago, the flames of fitna, of discord in Gardea have increased. It is not a coincidence that it's rebroadcast three days ago, coincided with the first violent incident after fanning the flames of fitna. Demonstrations began right after the broadcast, um, after six citizens were killed, more than 60 wounded, stores burned, property looted, families forced out of their homes. The demonstrations were by followers of Iqra, who repeated the slogan, La ilaha illallah al-ibadi adu'allah, meaning there is no God but Allah and ibadis are the enemies of Allah. Now, there are hadiths, of course, in which uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, predicted the emergence of a group labeled al-Mariqa. And Mariqa means to fly, shoot, or penetrate. It's linked to an expression, Mariqa Sahm, the arrow has passed through, meaning the matter is finished. And so in a hadith, the Prophet said that people from my ummah will leave the religion as fast as an arrow leaves the bow when it's shot. You will look at the place where it lands, you'll see nothing. Now, most authors interpret this as a reference to the radical Khawarij, the Kharijites of early Islam. Um, and some versions encourage the Muslims to kill al-Mariqa wherever they find them. Now, as this audience probably knows, the Khawarij or Kharijites uh, originally were those who abandoned Ali at the Battle of Safin in the year 657 of the Common Era, when he agreed with his nemesis Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, uh, agreed to the uh, proposal to submit their disagreement to human arbitration. Those who rejected the arbitration were called al muhakima because of their slogan, la hukm illa lillah, there is no judgment but God's. The meaning of the term khariji or, or uh, khawarij in the plural has been debated, could mean leaving Ali's army. Some say that it means they left the ummah altogether. Some say it, it refers to their readiness to go out to wage jihad in, in the path of God. The khawarij split into various sects. And the one that is most commonly thought of when people think of the Kharijite label is uh, the Azraqis or Azariqa, the group that was led by Nafa ibn Azraq. And they, of course, are the most radical. They're the ones who believe that the commission of grave sin or persistence in minor sin without repentance makes one an unbeliever who has committed apostasy and should be killed. And they said all true believers should migrate away from the society of unbelievers to their camp to do a new hijrah, like the uh, migration of the Muslims from Mecca to Medina in 622, and that they should wage war against the group's opponents. Those who do not join them should be killed, their property seized, their women and children enslaved. 
The Azraqis terrorized parts of what are today Iran and Iraq, but the movement was defeated and largely eliminated by the Umayyads near the close of the seventh century. So they haven't existed for a very long time. Now, other Kharijite groups rejected the necessity of a hijrah. And although they also felt that the labels Muslim and believer uh, should be reserved for observant members of their own group, and they felt, yes, it's a good thing to overthrow tyrants if possible, they also believed it is permissible to live peaceably together alongside other Muslims and to hide one's true beliefs in a hostile environment. And so that orientation includes the group that came to be called Ibadis. And uh, today, Ibadis are the only remaining group that adheres to the position of the original Muhakkimah, those who rejected the arbitration. Ibadis reject the label Khadiji because people associate Khadijism with violence against other Muslims, and that's never been an Ibadi practice. Ibadis, of course, are a distinct branch of Islam. They're not Sunni or Shiite, and um, they're a very tiny minority in the Muslim world, less than 1% of the world's Muslims. And although Ibadism emerged in Basra in, back in the eighth century, they were forced out of that region of Southern Iraq through persecution. Most of them, they, since they were descended from tribes that had come from Arabia, went back to Arabia. Um, but they, had also, they also sent out missionaries though to North Africa where Ibadism became a vehicle for indigenous people's rejection of the Arab conquests. And so Ibadi imamates, you know, states that were founded on the basis of Ibadism were established in Oman, the Hadramaut, Yemen, and North Africa. But conquests by non-Ibadi groups and conversions out of Ibadism to Sunni Islam led to a loss of Ibadism's hold on most of North Africa and all of Yemen. So the only state today that claims that the majority of its Muslims are Ibadi is the Sultanate of Oman. Although there are disagreements about statistics, but that's what they claim in any case. In North Africa, Ibadi communities may be found today in remote areas, the, the Mazab Valley in Algeria, the Nafusa Mountains of Northwest Libya, and the island of Djerba in Tunisia, as well, of course, as migrants to the capital cities of those countries. In addition, Omani rule in East Africa, which began as early as the 17th century and economic problems in Oman in the 19th century led to the migration of many Ibadis from the Omani interior to the Swahili coast. And there are some Ibadis that remain there today. Now, as you may know, Khadiji has been used as a pejorative label for all radical Muslim groups in the world today, um, those that engage in terrorism against, in violence against uh, Muslim targets. So to call the Ibadis Khawarij is to imply that they are radical extremists that pose a danger to the Ummah. On the other hand, there have not been any Ibadi terrorist groups. On the contrary, most Muslim terrorists, in, as we know, have been inspired by Wahhabi Salafi attitudes and teachings. So Ibn Abdul Wahhab, the founder of the Wahhabi movement in the 18th century, as 
probably many of you know, uh, drew on a Hanbali tradition that deemed practice essential to faith, which is a point on which Ibadis actually agree. And whereas most Sunni Muslims would say that a Muslim who doesn't pray, but who acknowledges the obligation of prayer is a negligent Muslim, Wahhabis would say, uh, not just Wahhabis, but even you know, many of the Hanbalis would say, no such a per anyone who abandons prayer is a kafir, is an unbeliever. Uh, the 12th century Ibn al-Jawzi said such a person should be killed. And of course, as we know, Ibn Abdul Wahhab in the 18th century considered popular veneration of holy places to be un-Islamic and to be tantamount to shirk, to polytheism. And he called on his supporters to fight against the polytheists until they adhered to monotheism, meaning the Wahhabi creed and way of life. He also didn't hesitate, not in his theoretical writings, but in his sort of uh, more informal, like his letters, to denounce even Hanbali scholars who didn't accept Wahhabi teachings, to denounce them as, um, as kuffar, as, not just kuffar, but guilty of shirk, you know, I mean, kuffar, uh, I'll talk about the meaning of that word a little bit later, kuffar is usually translated as unbelievers. In the case of Ibadism, I prefer to use a different translation because kuffar can mean more than one thing uh, in Ibadi thought. Um, Ibn Abdul Wahhab's son Abdullah uh, denied that Wahhabis considered all other Muslims kuffar, but Abdullah's son Suleiman said that not only the Shia, but non-Wahhabi Sunnis are kuffar. And when the Wahhabis captured Mecca in 1803, Suleiman compelled the ulama and Qadis to give an oath of allegiance to the Wahhabi creed. And when they protested that they were being treated like kuffar, Suleiman said, well, we disavow all the people of our time except those who belong to our group. So the, um, the Egyptian Ottoman invasion of Wahhabi territory in the early 19th century led to the rise of a discourse of separation that had long lasting impact. I mean, right to this day, because Muhammad Ali, uh, the ruler of Egypt who invaded uh, Arabia on behalf of the Ottoman Sultan was successful, many Saudi vassals sort of defected from the Wahhabi camp. And Suleiman saw this as a betrayal, not only of Wahhabism, but of Islam itself. He, says, he said that such people have gone over to the enemy, to the land of idolatry, and he made it a requirement for all true Muslims to migrate to Wahhabi-controlled territory. And you know, this has had a, a long impact even into the 20th century. Um, in the early 20th century, another Wahhabi sheikh expressed horror when he heard that some of the brethren who lived in Oman had made friends with Ibadis. And he wrote that it's contrary to faith to be kind to Jahmis, Ibadis, and tomb worshipers because they are kuffar. And um, he cited hadiths that encouraged true Muslims to kill such people, assuring them that they would be rewarded on the day of judgment. So Salafis 
have often regarded other groups, including the Abadis, as part of a, a, you know, an insidious conspiracy to destroy Islam from within. And of course, they see themselves as the only ones who can save it. Now, the Saudi kingdom, of course, has moderated its practice. And it, I mean, right with the begin, beginning with the founder of the third Saudi state, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud. But Wahhabism, of course, in its doctrine, remains hostile to many deep-rooted Islamic tendencies, including Sufism, Shiism, theology, etc. And really the hard-won ethos of coexistence and tolerance of a diversity of perspectives that really has characterized uh, much of, of the history of Sunni Islam. Now, from the outset, Wahhabism's critics compared Wahhabis to Kharijites, by which they meant Azraqis, right? And so the Ottomans uh, called them a despicable Kharijite sect, referred to their Kharijite swords that wreaked havoc on Muslim countries. And Ibadis also likened the Wahhabis to the Azarqa in their practice of takfir. I think, you know, takfir is a term so many of us use now, it probably doesn't need explanation, but it means accusing, calling other people unbelievers or polytheists. And also the demand of hijra to their own territory was similar to the Azarqa and their bloody wars against other Muslims. So when the Wahhabis in the late 18th and early 19th century conquered much of what today is the Sultanate of Oman and convinced many people in that area to embrace Wahhabi doctrines, the leading Ibadi scholar of Oman at the time, Abu Nabhan al-Kharusi, rejected the idea that the Wahhabis could be Hanbalis because he said Hanbalis don't declare the people of the Qibla to be unbelievers or deem it permissible to kill them and slave their children and plunder their wealth. So he said, uh, these are Azraqi practices, which means that they've taken some things from Hanbalism, some things from Azraqism and created something new. And he called Wahhabism a terrible calamity. And he said that there is no basis in religion to label members of the Ummah as mushrik, mushrikeen, polytheists. And so he said the Wahhabis are the Marqa of the Hadith, right? And they are the real Khawarij. You know, and that idea was adopted by other Ibadis as well. So we have an ironic situation in which Ibadis and Wahhabis accuse each other of being Khadijite, be, meaning radical, while each group claims to be the only one that preserves the original Islam of the Salaf, okay? So the pious ancestors. Now, one thing I found interesting as I was learning about, uh, I, I looked very much at the history, the history of the 19th century in Oman. It's one area that I've really looked at a lot. British officers in the 19th centuries saw a great deal of similarity between Wahhabis and Ibadis, including a tendency toward Puritanism, if you like, and stern application of the law prohibitions against smoking and against decorating mosques and tombs, a lack of veneration of saints and belief in their intercession. And some British observers even conflated the two groups, thinking, for example, that Azan ibn Qais, who was brought to power in 1868 as a result of 
conservative Ibadi uprising that overthrew the ruler of Oman and put him in power as the imam, the British resident in the Gulf at the time described him as having strong Wahhabi views and tendencies. And so, you know, this idea that they're really the same. And so both groups do believe that only those who fulfill their religious obligations should properly be called Muslims and believers. Both groups prioritize the Quranic imperative of commanding the right, forbidding the wrong. And the Ibadi conservatives who led a series of uprisings against the Sultanate of Oman in the 19th and early 20th century refer to themselves as al-mutawi'a, those who enforce obedience, which is uh, a clear echo of the Wahhabi use of the term. And the British uh, political agent in Muscat, when uh, Hazan ibn Qais was in power as the Ibadi imam, says that the Mutawa'a held the populace in Muscat in a vice of fear, issuing strict regulations about dress and public behavior, prohibiting the use of tobacco and prohibiting music in public. They zealously strode the streets, cane in hand, vigilantly looking for backsliders. <laughs> this description is quite resonant, isn't it, of Saudi Arabia's religious police. So you can understand perhaps some of this. Another thing that Ibadis and Wahhabis share is a strong emphasis on the doctrine of Walaya or Wala, as the uh, Wahhabis say, um, which means uh, loyalty or affiliation or association on the one hand, Wala or Walaya with Muslims and Bara or Bara'a, meaning dissociation or disavowal of those who are considered the enemies of God. In order to maintain the purity of their communities, both of them have really emphasized this doctrine and have a strong preoccupation with this distinction between those who are in and those who are out of the group. And so, of course, there is a Quranic basis for these concepts. I'll just read um, a little description written by a 10th century Ibadi scholar describing the behavior appropriate to dissociation. He says, the enmity of the Muslims for infidels, if they do the deeds of infidelity, is demonstrated by speaking harshly to them, hating them, separating from them, avoiding sitting with them, fighting them until they return to what God has commanded. Now, if out of fear, the Muslims must practice dissimulation, hiding their views, then they'll just separate from them in their hearts and hate them, deem them as miscreants, but not do any, not fight them, right? Because you have to have a certain strength to be able to fight them. And he says, whoever doesn't dissociate from infidels is not a Muslim in God's eyes. One must separate and dissociate from anyone who commits a grave sin or persists in any act of disobedience to God, no matter who he is, living or dead, father or son, distant or near. And this is somewhat similar to what Ibn Abdul Wahab wrote. He wrote, a person's Islam is not sound, even if he is a monotheist towards God and deserts polytheism, unless he is hostile to polytheists and declares to them his hostility and hatred. So Wahhabis had this 
belief that society was composed of antithetical forces of true Muslims on the one hand and polytheists on the other. And then those, of course, who pretended to be true Muslims, the hypocrites, right? Okay, now Ibadis don't condone violence against anyone except oppressive rulers and their supporters. And then only if you have an adequate number of people who have uh, pledged themselves to the cause to make it potentially successful. But their writings nonetheless reflect a similarly stark perspective of a society composed of antithetical forces of good and evil. At least the writings from the pre-modern period certainly do that. And so uh, the Walaya Bara'a system strengthens the feeling of being a member of a, a closed and cohesive community. Those who violated community laws, especially in North African communities, would be excommunicated. And Ibadi and the Mazab told me that in former times, a person who deviated from community laws would be denounced publicly in the mosque. The entire community would dissociate from him and even his wife <laughs> would not speak to him, which encouraged the miscreants hasty public repentance and restoration to the community. So in this way, the community was sort of kept very cohesive and the religious scholars had a great deal of authority. Now, this type of bara'a as excommunication communication no longer exists among Ibadis. But some of the commentators on those violent incidents in Ghardaya described Sunni resentment of the insularity of Ibadi communities in the Mazab and the refusal of Ibadis to marry outside their own community. So I find that rather interesting. Now, despite the alleged, you know, the similarities that are there between Abadis and Wahhabis that the British observed, the British also commented favorably on Ibadi friendliness and tolerance, you know, so that actually I'll read one quote in particular because I really like this one. The British official W.H. Ingrams, who spent time, a lot of time in Zanzibar as well as in the Hadramaut, said he would rather live among Ibadis than among Baptists or Methodists because in his experience, Ibadis are the most tolerant people in the matter of religion I have known. So, and now this may strike you as odd considering everything I just said about Walaya and Bara'a and the idea that only pious Ibadis could really be Muslims and believers. I will acknowledge that there is a certain disconnect between sort of the theoretical aspects of Ibadi belief in its classical versions. I, I think that Ibadism has changed a great deal, especially in Oman. So disconnect between that theory and actual practice. In actual practice, you really don't see any signs of disapproval even, let alone of disavowal of non-Ibadis. And there are also important differences. And one of the biggest differences is the interpretation of kufr, which is usually translated as unbelief. I prefer to translate kufr as infidelity or unfaithfulness because the Ibadis distinguish kufr shirk, which would be the unfaithfulness of unbelief on the one hand, that would be polytheism. And they say no member of the ummah should ever be accused of polytheism, okay? That's one type, but then those who are either have errors in their doctrine, they're not a body, 
or if all these who commit grave sins and don't repent are also unfaithful to God. And so that type of infidelity is called kufr nifaq, the unfaithfulness of hypocrisy, or kufr ni'ma. And here kufr means ingratitude. You know, just as the Quran contrasts shakirin wal kafirin, right? The, the grateful and the ungrateful. So in this case, the kufar ni'ma are those who are ungrateful to God for his blessings. So they also insist that all members of the ummah should have the same legal rights, regardless of their sect or their level of piety, including the rights of intermarriage in theory, which is interesting since I just said Sunnis complain that Ibadis won't let probably their daughters marry, <laughs> marry non-Ibadis. But uh, in theory, intermarriage, mutual inheritance, praying together, no problem, Ibadis have no problem praying behind a non-Ibadi, let it behind a non-Ibadi imam in the mosque. Prayer for their dead, burial in Muslim cemeteries, greeting with the Muslim greeting, all of these, and, and of course, eating the meat that they sacrifice, all of these are rights for all the entire Ummah. The Wahhabis, on the other hand, have, at least historically, regarded those who did not embrace their doctrines as polytheists. And the Sheikh Abdelaziz bin Baz, who was the Saudi Mufti and probably the most important, the leading Saudi scholar of the 20th century, when asked if it was permissible to pray with the Ibadis, said no, <laughs> it is not permissible to pray with the Ibadis. Other Ibadi doctrines that distinguish them from the Wahhabis are they deny that the prophet will intercede for grave sinners. And so anyone who's in hellfire is going to remain there. And they reject all anthropomorphic descriptions of God as being literally true. So they're similar to the Matazla in, in interpreting them in a metaphorical fashion. They deny the possibility of seeing God in the afterlife. They also say the Quran is a created expression of God's speech. It's not identical with an eternal divine attribute of speech. And they have confidence in the efficacy of human reason to know of the existence of God and something uh, of his nature. And there are minor differences in practice, which is usually what people are aware of. The uh, Ibadis pray with their hands stand by their sides, things like this. And Ibadis, do, even though they don't have Sufi orders and they don't make pilgrimages to tombs, nonetheless, many Ibadis have been drawn to Sufi teachings, to a sort of mystical sense. And uh, the leading Ibadi scholars in Oman in the 19th century and early 20th century, um, many of them were, uh, you know, composed mystical poetry, wrote commentaries on Ibn al-Farid's poetry, things like this. And this is a strong contrast with Wahhabi rejection of mysticism in any form. And so, as I said, Ibadis are not literalists in matters of theology, and they dismiss Wahhabis and Hanbalis and anyone else who takes the anthropomorphic descriptions of God literally as hashwiya, meaning you know, an irrational acceptance of literal texts. And whereas Sunni Muslims idealize the generation of the prophet and his companions and say that the great fitna, the great civil war that broke out a mere 34 years after the prophet's death was a 
a legitimate disagreement in matters of ijtihad, right? That's often what is said among people who were all righteous. The Abadis don't accept that. They believe that the third caliph, Uthman ibn Affan, abandoned righteousness after the first six years of his rule, that ultimately he deserved to be assassinated when he refused either to abdicate or to repent. And that Muawiyah and his supporters, who rejected the rightful imamate of the fourth caliph, Ali, were rebels who committed grave injustices. You know, one thing that I do want to say is that, of course, doctrines and practices aren't static, right? They're subject to social and political influences. And, you know, the founder of the third Saudi state rejected a lot of the precedent. He lifted travel restrictions to other countries. He sent his sons on diplomatic missions. He had Arab advisors from Ottoman lands. He had Westerners come in and advise on economic development. He abstained from treating the Shia as idolaters. But in doing this, of course, he rejected parts of the Wahhabi heritage that have been preserved by either more conservative ulama or by radical jihadi groups, as we know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS today. In East Africa, a textbook that was written in, by an Abadi in 1920 said that it's okay to feel love in one's heart for a non-Ibadi if he's nice to you, that that doesn't matter as long as you also in your heart have a knowledge that this is not a religious affiliate, that it doesn't affect behavior, that if the prophet was kind to everyone, we can be too. <laughs> and finally, in Oman, since Sultan Qaboos came to power in 1970, one of the big changes has been a dramatic desectarianization of Ibadism so that no sectarian teachings are allowed in schools or mosques. And this has led to the rise of a whole generation of Omanis, two generations even, who don't really know what makes Ibadis different from anybody else. <laughs> and so Ibadis have come to see, look at all of these sectarian wars as kind of ridiculous as well as horrifying. They see themselves as the moderates par excellence, tolerant of everyone, <laughs> able to mediate in the sectarian disputes of the Middle East. And the one thing, though, the Mufti of Oman, who's been the same person since 1975, Sheikh Ahmed Al-Khalili, says that dissociation is important from those who are unjust. And therefore, scholars who support unjust rulers, and plenty of that in the Middle East, right, <laughs> should be subject to dissociation. So he denies that Ibadis dissociate from Sunnis or Shia. He supports the unification of the Ummah, but he believes that it is uh, totally wrong to endorse the, the policies or support the uh, unjust rulers. So I'm going to end at this point. There's a lot more that could be said, but we'll stop here and let's, uh, I'd be very happy to hear your questions and comments. Thank you so much, Valerie. That's really a, a wonderful kaleidoscopic view of both <laughs> the sort of early theological debates and the resonances with some of the you know, other theological uh, traditions from early Islam down to the present current. Yeah 
geopolitical concerns across different sort of nations. And um, I, I'm really happy that Hamad al-Khalil got a call out because um, I'm going to probably ask a question about him soon enough. But um, uh, Faisal, I wanted to invite you if you wanted to ask any questions. Um, I naturally have a whole host of <laughs> questions related to this. And I wanted to also let the participants know, the sort of uh, people who are uh, joining us from around the world, actually, uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to put them in the chat and we'll definitely come to them. If you'd actually like to, because there's a sort of um, a relatively uh, familiar uh, crowd with us uh, this afternoon, if you'd like to ask a question in person, I can uh, let you sort of get hold of the mic at some point, since we have a bit of time as well. But first, let me turn to you, Faisal, please. Thanks very much, Osama, and thanks very much, Valerie. That really was fantastic. And, you know, as you were speaking, I thought to myself, in so many ways, some of these tensions seem to be uh, as for a manifestation of what Freud might have called the narcissism of minor differences. Uh, yes. And you know, it's precisely as it were the similarities that create the conflict rather than the differences, because the exactly. problem is how do you actually signify and identify the differences mm -hmm. uh, in, in this situation, especially in contemporary times when you know the the name Kharij or Khawarij uh, has become almost a kind of universal term of castigation. Right. Anyone can be called it, as you so nicely pointed out. Ibadi mm -hmm. can call a Wahhabi uh, Khariji. You know, so-called uh, moderate Muslims can call militant ones Al-Qaeda ISIS Khariji, and they do very frequently, and the reverse. So in a way, it's almost as if the term Khariji has become a universal identifier and that I find really fascinating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, such an ancient term and B belongs, as you nicely point out, to such a small, less than 1% of the pop current population of Muslims in the world. So there's something bizarrely, if you will, apart from the theological and the political issues involved, there's something of a psychic or psychological nature mm -hmm. here, or ideological mm -hmm. that allows for this kind of thing to happen. And I just want to add one more thing and then ask you to comment, which is that, you know, when you were describing the British officials who were well disposed towards the Ibadis, of course, many of the same ones are also well disposed to the Wahhabis, mm -hmm. for similar <laughs> reasons, because they see them as harking back to their own Protestant and Puritan past. And as a result, perhaps you see modernist Muslims falling into the same kind of um, logic uh, where, you know, Wahhabism gets to be seen, the philosopher Muhammad Iqbal, you know, writes in, in, in colonial India as the, the first throb of modernity in Islam. Oh. It's interesting because your story could tell, give us an alternative genealogy of such a modernity, if we want to go down that road at all, you know, through descent mm -hmm. and through what scholars have indeed done through the idea of the Republic or Republicanism. And mm -hmm. so I found it really fascinating, just as the Mutazala have always been or re regularly been seen since the 19th century in Western scholarship as being rationalists, the Ibadis or the Khawarij have often been seen as being the first Republicans uh, and surely this tells upon, I'm sure it's entirely anachronistic 
to use these terms, mm-hmm. tells on the modernist Muslim scholarship and perhaps on, on sort of more diffuse ideas among diverse Muslim populations. And so, so it's a bit of a shaggy dog question, but I just wanted to get in the different ways in which terms like Khawarij or indeed Wahhabi have been deployed from the 19th century until today. Mm-hmm. And then ask, you know, how those deployments actually might affect the strange similarities that you pointed out and the right. conflicts that come out of similarity rather than difference. Well, I think you're raising Freud's uh, phrase, narcissism of, of you know, minor differences is so perfect because my husband is a psychoanalytic psychologist and we have long conversations on these issues and I don't claim to really fully understand it, but uh, what I found is that there's been quite an interesting literature in the last decade, a couple of decades on trying to explain the rise of fundamentalism, not just in the Muslim world, but in the world at large from a psychoanalytic perspective. I'm interested also in trying to understand why were Ibadis able to give up this idea of purity as the, the main goal? <laughs> you know, purification, of course, never ends, right? No one is ever going to get to the purification of the entire world. And globalization, where you are constantly encountering other points of view, despite the closed worlds we create on social media, we still encounter others and are therefore challenged with regard to our own ideas of uniquely holding on to the truth. And that dynamic can lead either to more openness or to more closeness, really, depending on the extent to which you identify this as a threat to who you are. So I am interested in, you know, one thing I I haven't talked about, and it's not really a matter of reinterpreting Ibadism, but what I find very interesting is that the Ministry of Religious Affairs in Oman has, you know, it had a traveling exhibit, I don't know if you saw it in England, on religious tolerance in Oman. And the Omani version of Islam is total tolerance. And in a way, this is really true. I mean, in Oman, the Sultan has given lands to Hindus to build temples. Buddhists can practice. Anyone can practice. So it goes even beyond what we would normally consider the monotheistic religions. Although I should note that Jews and Christians are called mushrikun in classical uh, Bali literature. So they're not just kafar, they're mushrikun. But the journal that was published and actually edited by Abdurrahman Salmi from the ministry was called a tafahum, mutual understanding. And that was really, actually, it was Abdurrahman Salmi's uncle, Abdullah Salmi, who wrote a book called Religious Tolerance, a Vision for a New World, in which he said that without understanding each other's religious point of view, he said all religions uh, aim to promote good morals and kindness, etc., love, and therefore 
we need to understand each other and not feel threatened by each other. He felt that the future of humanity was really premised on this. So I feel that that is very interesting. So this has been a part of, of Oman's present, self-presentation to the world. And John Wilkinson, in his book on Ibadism, it was just a minor point that he said at the end when he talked about how Ibadis present themselves as peaceful and they are moderate, they are nice people. And he said, I wonder if niceness is going to be enough to excite young people in Oman. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting question. But whatever, I think the question of not only what causes groups to radicalize, but what causes groups to embrace moderation and openness. It's partly, of course, a strategic thing, right? Bodies are a tiny minority. And in the you know, in the Ibadis until the mid 19th century called themselves they were a, a Kharijite sect, according to their own literature, for the most part. Sometimes, however, they also used al Khawarij as a code term for the Azarqa. But in the late 19th century, with the growth of pan Islamic sentiment, we start having the issuance of Ibadi works talking about the difference between the Ibadis and the Khawadij, and that Ibadis are not Khawadij. And that is, you know, like a gut reaction now. Ibadis are going to say, we are not Khawadij. And even Abdurrahman Salami objected in an article that I wrote to my even saying that they were, he said, he said don't use the word Khawadij, use the word Mahakimah. And I said, but no one's going to know what that means. At least they know what Ikhawarij means. So in any case, I think that, yes, as uh, one psychoanalyst who deals with international diplomacy, actually, Vamik Volken, an emeritus professor at University of Virginia, he uses the image of a tent that, you know, we all have these different identities, right? And so there is the big tent and then there's the smaller tent. And at each level, you have to have symbols to to show what group this is. So that when there are, as he said, similar to what Freud was saying, when there are minor differences or seemingly minor differences, it becomes even all the more important to symbolically differentiate. Now, in this case, I think in terms of attitudes towards others, Ibadis and Wahhabis today are very, very different. So in spite of all of this, theoretical similarity in the language. You know, another Ibadi uh, scholar in Oman with whom I was co-writing an article objected to my saying that Ibadis regard non-Ibadis as kufar. So I gave him a whole bunch of quotes from different Ibadi literature, past and, and recent, and he finally went, okay, so you know the literature, okay. So clearly, he didn't want me to spread what he knew to be true because it does not reflect contemporary Ibadi attitudes at all. And I think it's interesting that Ibadis are very proud of Ibadism. The state of Oman promotes the publication of Ibadism as a part of Omani heritage, but there are parts of that heritage that they don't want disseminated. There's one book that was written in 
I think the uh, 15th, 16th century, that is really adamant about how horrible all non-Islamic groups are. That book is banned in Oman. Even though at first they published it, then they went, oops, that was a mistake. Let's get rid of that one. <laughs> Likewise, back in uh, 2005, there was an announcement of a discovery of a plot to overthrow the government, which, whoa, what is that? Well, it was just a study group of intellectuals who were studying the requirements of the traditional Ibadi imamate. That is a threatening thing to do in a sultanate. Ibadism uh, theoretically does not endorse dynastic rule at all. <laughs> so it, it, Oman, you know, Sultan Qaboos was a very wise ruler. Uh, he was, yes, had all power in his hands, but he also knew how to exercise it with a great deal of wisdom. So after these people were all sentenced to prison terms or whatever, he swooped in and pardoned them all and took their leaders and gave them official positions in the Ministry of Religious Affairs and thereby co-opting them. And so he was very, very, very smart. I mean, when he came to power, there was still a significant Ibadi uh, rebellion that was being conducted mainly from Saudi Arabia, interestingly enough. The, um, the leaders of the former Ibadi imamate who were defeated by Sultan Qaboos's father, um, Said bin Taymur, in the late 1950s had fled into exile in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia didn't mind um, agitating things, you know, <laughs> roiling the, <laughs> the situation there in Oman. And Sultan Qaboos, however, through offering positions and offering money, was able to get some of the imamate supporters to come back and help build a new country. And others never came back, but um, he was ultimately recognized by the son of the leader of the last rebellion that established the separate imamate in Oman in 1913. His son, Muhammad, who had earlier written about how imamate and sultanate are constantly at odds because they're based on such totally different ideas. But ultimately, he met with Sultan Qaboos and recited a poem, which I found it written in his own hand in his library in Oman, in which he praised Qaboos for his justice. And so to praise him for his justice, that's an acknowledgement that he is a legitimate imam. So I feel like, um, you know, it's very interesting, the changes that have happened. Yeah. One brief question, if I may, Osama, as a Asbari myself, I just would like to think, but I may be completely wrong, that some of these changes you describe actually may have originated in, in Zanzibar, mm -hmm. because of course they occur there first. Yes. Uh, and then after the revolution in 1964, you have the migration of many Zanzibaris to Oman, where they established in the civil service. You know the story better than I right. do. And in Zanzibar, of course, there wasn't an absolute monarchy by the time of the revolution. It was oh. less a constitutional monarchy with political parties. It was not an experiment that ended well and the Sultan no. exile. But it just makes me wonder whether actually it's the peculiar circumstances of East Africa that became a kind of laboratory for sure. the reform. I agree with you. I think that we really see this in the, uh, I'll just say, the leader of the 
the uprising of 1913 was Nordina Salami, right? That, who is actually the great grandfather of Abdurrahman Salami, by the way. And so it, it was his grandson who became the Minister of Religious Affairs, Abdullah Salmi, until recently. Uh, he stepped down from that position, but, um, but the new Minister of Religious Affairs was one of the organizers of the Religious Tolerance in Oman exhibit. So I anticipate that it, there will be continuity there. Um, in any case, what uh, I guess, um, some Ibadis in Zanzibar had written to Nuruddin Salami because he was the leading scholar of that generation, you know, in the very beginning of the 20th century, and said, you know, is, there, are some, uh, there are Muslims here who send their children to schools that have been set up by the Christians, meaning, uh, you know, Europeans. Um, and uh, by then, of course, uh, Zanzibar was a British protectorate, but there had been missionary groups of various types that had, had a set of schools and hospitals. And uh, people are learning foreign languages and um, people are modifying their dress to include a European style jacket on top of their, uh, you know, the dishdasha, um, the, the rope that they're wearing. So. And he replied, oh, and some people are even trimming their beards. Ooh. So, and, and Nordina Salami replied that none of this is acceptable, none of it. And I, you really see, you know, here he is, a blind scholar in the interior of Oman, and you are contrasting this, this environment. And he, of course, was, a, was the leader of uh, a, an uprising that didn't manage to conquer all of Oman, but managed to conquer the interior and establish an imamate in the interior while the sultanate remained on the coast. And so the distinction between the interior and the coast became, you know, very important. But I think, yes, in Zanzibar, Zanzibar was so incredibly cosmopolitan, really. And so I think that the amount of interaction, the friendships that were formed really strong friendships between Ibadis and other people, other Muslim groups, including among the ulama. I, I think that you're right. It has, uh, you know, and sometimes I, I see some contradictions in um, the person, for example, of Abu Muslim al-Bahrani, uh, who was a great poet, but also a judge and a religious scholar in Zanzibar. The, he's the one who wrote that textbook saying, you know, it's okay to have affection, just in your, uh, that kind of thing. But he was a big supporter of Nuruddin Salami's uprising, considered himself the poet of, of the revolution and all of this, the, uh, the Hassan ibn Thabit of this new uprising. But he also wrote to encourage Muslims to unify, to face colonialism, and even for Egyptian Muslims and Copts to unify and to make common cause. And so, you know, these apparent contradictions are, I think, a reflection of the compartmentalization of the self that we all do, right? We, we all wear many hats and sometimes we wear the professor hat and sometimes we wear the parent hat or, or 
the, you know, the national hat, the whatever hat it is, or the religious identifier hat, whatever uh, hat it is that you're wearing. Um, and so he could at the same time be an art and support him. Mean, you should read his poetry, how he praises the uh, martyrs of the Mahakama who were slaughtered by Ali at, uh, at Nahrawan. And he says, we are thirsting to drink from the waters of Nahrawan. He's, you know, Nahrawan, which was Ali's massacre of the early Hawadij, is, uh, becomes is, as, uh, you know, symbolically important as Karbala for the, for the Shia, right? And so this desire to participate in that, I mean, that is about as sectarian as you can get. But on the other hand, he also promotes pan-Islamic sentiment and even nationalist sentiment when it is favors, when it's a, a good thing to do. I didn't really answer your question, but I think it, it's a fascinating thing, this reflection of complicatedness. Ah, but I did want to say one thing about this, Zanzibar and, and Oman. Um, I happened to sit in on an audience that Sheikh Abdullah Salmi, when he was Minister of Religious Affairs, gave to a visiting a professor, a Muslim professor from the US who had a group of, of students with him. And uh, one, uh, and the professor asked him a question about Ibadism. And he replied, it's in Arabic, but he replied, the Ibadism of Oman is unlike Ibadism that you see elsewhere because we are people of the sea. <laughs> And so this influence of maritime culture that we interact. And I felt this was incredibly interesting because he was the grandson of the man who set up the imamate in the interior of Oman in opposition to the sultanate of the coast. And so, but he says, we are people of the sea and therefore our Ibadism is different from that of others. I, I found that really fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much, Valerie. I, I mean, I've, I've got, just so many questions, but um, <laughs> we've, we've only got around 20 minutes or so. So um, I, I mean, I'm sure we'll be able to cover a, a lot of terrain, but I, I also don't want to sort of um, prevent Faisal from, from coming back because I, I was really enjoying that discussion uh, on, on both of your parts. Just the last thing you mentioned about poetry uh, and saying poetry in praise of, you know, Nahrawan, it reminded me of um, Imran ibn Hittan, who is a sort of prominent Khariji from the earliest generations. I forget exactly mm -hmm. when he died. But he has a famous kind of poem. Uh, I'll just read the first line. What a you know, what a wonderful strike from a man of taqwa who didn't want to do anything but you know give contentment to his lord or something like that. Mm -hmm. This was in praise of the killer of Ali, right? And uh, Imran ibn Hittan is someone who is highly regarded as a narrator by Sunnis as well. But mm -hmm. they will always say, you know, the Khawarij, they can be trusted in transmitting because they think anyone who sort of like commits a major sin is outside the deen. So we can certainly trust them as, as transmitters of hadith. But it's just fascinating, like the, the diversity of sort of perspectives that you have. And I guess, I mean, like a question that I spend some time thinking about is at what point does a position become sectarian? And, and that's just mm -hmm. so contingent on so many different dimensions. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you mentioned was that, you know, in a sense, Ibadism, by becoming moderate now, the question for the next generation is, well, why should I be Ibadi? Like, what's special about this? This is just right. like anodyne 
you know, liberalism, shall we say, right? <laughs> and I mean, like, uh, it reminded me of the closing paragraphs of um, Francis Fukuyama's book saying the end of history is going to be a boring place, right? Wow. <laughs> you know, there's nothing, nothing will excite people. It's, it's just going to be about calculation and sort of like um, profit margins and things like that. Of course, we're, we're seeing the resurgence of European right, and we're seeing the resurgence of all sorts of yeah. problematic movements around the world. And I think, I, I guess one of the questions I had was, what does the future hold now that, you know, Ibadis have reached the end of history, right? Um, but besides that, I, I also wanted to sort of query one of the points you made earlier, saying that um, the abandonment, abandonment of salah or prayer is what constituted kufr for the Wahhabis. Um, and you were saying, yes, some of the Hanbalis said this in the medieval era. Yeah. Well. But it's actually not too dissimilar to what a lot of Sunnis say more generally. Mm. It's just, I guess the Wahhabis would, you know, put those words in action because there's an explicit hadith from the Prophet, which the Sunnis at least would consider canonical. I'm not sure about other traditions, but I expect the Abadis to as well, where the Prophet says, um, al-ahdu uh, you know, the, the covenant that they've taken with me, meaning the believers, is prayer. Whoever leaves it is a disbeliever. And, you know, this is the same problem that you have with various hadiths where the Prophet says such and such an act is kufr. Is that literally kufr or is it some kind of right. metaphorical kufr? Right. And some of the early jurists, including Ahmed ibn Hanbal, said this is actually kufr. In fact, most of the jurists, as far as I know, said that, you know, someone who does this and persists is an unbeliever and should be killed. Only the Hanafis, and I'm talking Sunni jurists here, only the Hanafis say it's kufr, but they should be imprisoned and beaten until they start praying again. <laughs> Which is, so, so the jurists actually, this pretty standard fair opinion, I think the, you know, in practice, it must have been honored in the breach more than in the observance. Mm. And that's why when the Wahhabis come and start practicing this in, you know, in reality, it really shocks the, <laughs> shocks people's consciousnesses. So I, I just wanted maybe a reflection on that. And, um, you know, if we have some more time, we can go into other things, but I think, you know, uh, I don't want to, to prevent myself from coming back as well. So please. I'm not sure I have a real response. I think that uh, you raise some interesting points. I think it's still the case that in the discussion of the meaning of Iman, uh, Sunnis, non-Hanbali Sunnis have said Iman is, um, you know, the acknowledgement of the belief, the profession of the faith is just qawl, whereas uh, the uh, Hanbali said it was, you know, amal and, and so the abadis are similar that way. But I think you're right, of course, that to articulate it is one thing. Is it actually going to be practiced is, is another issue. So, yeah, I agree with that. And any speculations on the future of abadism in the context of like, it just ah. becoming not distinct in any way, in a sense? Well, actually, I think Ibadis are very proud of their, of their beliefs. You know, uh, the Mufti actually has written a lot of, in defense of Ibadism, but his most recent work as magnum opus um, is a multi-volume work called uh, Borhan al-Haq, The Demonstration of the Truth, in which he devotes an, an entire volume to a single aspect of doctrine. Now he's finished the theology parts, now he's getting into the, into the fit part, which is less interesting to me personally, sorry. Um, but, you know, he has this belief that any reasonable person 
who really will look without fanaticism or excessive allegiance to the imams of his school will, will recognize the reasonableness of Ibadi doctrine. And there are many people who agree with him on this. So I think uh, even though that doesn't in any way prevent harmonious coexistence with many other people, I think that many, you know, the Ibadi intellectuals are still very, very firm about their distinctiveness. Now, this is just the intellectuals. I did, you know, until recently, there was no way to pursue a post-bachelor degree in Islamic studies and theology in Oman. Now that has changed. They now have one at Sultan Qaboos University. So they have the, um, the College of Sharia Sciences, which used to be an independent institute. And now it's a college that's been incorporated into Sultan Qaboos University. And they have a faculty of Ibadi and non-Ibadi faculty there. So, so at that time when there was no way of, of pursuing a master's or doctorate in Islamic studies without going to another country where you're inevitably going to study in a, a Sunni institution. Now, they didn't go to Saudi Arabia for, I think, perhaps understandable reasons. They tended to prefer the Ahl Bayt University in Jordan or the Zaytuna University in Tunis. But I asked the Mufti, are you at all afraid about that people will be converted to Sunni Islam and will fall away, that there will be no future for Ibadism. And he was unconcerned, which I thought was interesting. I interviewed a number of ulama, Ibadi ulama who had done their studies. I asked about their experience of doing it and what it made them think. Most of them, interestingly enough, ended up writing their dissertations on a subject re related to Ibadism. But, uh, there have, of course, been Ibadis who converted to Sunni Islam. Um, you know, I asked the former dean of law at Sultan Qaboos University about, I said, you know, asked him about the future of Ibadism. Right. And his reaction was, who cares? The differences are secondary issues that no one cares about anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, so, I mean, can I can I actually add a, add to the anecdote you mentioned of the you know that I think you said the Mufti seeming unconcerned that they would potentially leave Ibadi Islam to something like mainstream Sunnism, and um, I mean this may be a result of that sort of an attitude. When I was a student um, as an undergraduate at Oxford, um, and this is back in the two thousands, I, I was studying with a scholar, Muhammad Akram Nadwi, um, who's who was at the Center for Islamic Studies. And um, he once commented that, uh, you know, I, I've had uh, like um, Ibadis come here um, and, and visit me uh, with converts to Islam saying, oh, you know, this person converted after spending time with us and we'd like you to take care of sort of teaching him. And this was a South Asian Hanafi. Mm. And uh, I mean, he, he just was very admiring of their openness. <laughs> he was saying mm. that. They're not sectarian at all, right? Yeah. And um, and so he has he maintains sort of good relations with um, a lot of Ibadis who are, you know, this Oxford Center for Islamic Studies is interesting because it's kind of like a, a constellation of funding from throughout the Muslim world, including probably Oman at some point. So they'll have scholars associated with various mm. different orientations coming and attending. Um, and he says that he always loves his um, sort of uh, Ibadi compatriot. Oh, 
Ibadi colleagues when they join because yeah. you always find them so open-minded and so sort of like you know there's no sense of we're not Sunni either and this is where I mean like you were also saying earlier that you know they are uh, historically they're very distinct from Sunnism um, they're very much in the Mu'tazili tradition and you kind of mm -hmm. expect that with the Khariji um, sort of history but except with regard to predestination there they are like uh, the Asharis actually and uh, Wilfeld Madlung said Al-Ashari took his doctrine from the Ibadis, that the Ibadis oh, had it first. <laughs> okay, all right. So, I mean, sorry, who, who said this? Uh, Madlung said this. Madlung said this, okay. yes. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to have to look that one up. I'm, I'm, Madlung is always the, the careful surgical reader. And yes. So, um, but uh, just in terms of like, um, you know, that history, I wanted to ask you specifically about the transition or the, the diachronic transition of the last century and a half. So the Wahhabis emerge and suddenly Kharijism is a dirty word because the, the Ottomans, the Azharis, everyone's sort of accusing the Wahhabis. Uh, and I use that term advisedly. Right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. not my own right, right, right. But they're accusing them of being Khawarij. And this continues, of course, in the present because um, not towards the sort of uh, Saudi Salafi tendency as much anymore, but now... Uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, Jeffrey Kenny has a wonderful book called Muslim Rebels, where he looks at the way the Egyptian Azhar state starts mm. attacking the Muslim Brotherhood. And this has been revived in the post-Arab revolutionary context. Um, mm. So the term Khawarij, I was very interested to hear that you were saying it's being deployed against Ibadis in 2014. This mirrors exactly what's going on in Egypt in 2013 against the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. And so I, I sort of wonder, now that term is completely sort of like so sullied in the public imagination that they're saying look you know don't associate us with the Khawarij we've got nothing to do with them and and doesn't that have a fundamental doesn't that represent a fundamental shift in how you sort of identify your own genealogy historically I, I, I wonder about that question as well um, and your own theological mm. um, yeah. that, that'll be my last sort of question <laughs> well yes I, I don't know if, is it a fundamental difference I mean, even some very early epistles written by Ibadi scholars talk about al-Khawarij when they really mean all the other Khawarij, you know. Um, so, to, and they have always stressed the difference between them because the Khawarij allow the killing of Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, pardon? You know, that's really the Azariqa. Not it the is really the Azariqa. And yet sometimes I have found that in the early Abadi epistles, they simply talk about al-Khawarij, meaning the Azariqa. Sometimes they talk specifically about other groups. They also tend to um, lump the Najadat and the uh, sometimes even the Sufriya, who are really, we don't even know of any differences, doctrinally speaking, between the Sufriya and Ibadiya. We don't even know much about the Sufri, except that there were Sufri states, you know, political entities in North Africa, and there were Sufris for a while in uh, Oman as well. But so sometimes they want to make such a distinction that we are the ones who know the proper thing, and they, that even if we're at war, we may kill someone in war, but we're not going to go and enslave his wife and children or destroy his property. You know, so they make this absolute distinction. One thing I just thought of something interesting, because despite the um, 
the fact that the bodies don't go around saying, you know, we dissociate from Sunnis or, or emphasizing that distinction. I was invited to um, participate in a panel on Ibadi Tafsir when the um, World uh, Middle East Studies Congress, the WACNES, World Congress on Middle East Studies was held in Ankara back in, I don't know, again, may, it was a, a, a number of years ago now, but they, and then in uh, the Turkish organizer of that panel, had me and the other panelist who is an Omani Ibadi and some of his friends over for dinner. And after we had eaten, they got into an argument over the verse, the Quranic verse that talks about right? You know, yes. and that that whole question of who can know, you know, it, it, because there's no period yes, is yeah. do, are those who well who are well grounded in knowledge do they simply acknowledge god or can they know something they yeah. got into a big argument over it the abadi scholar upholding the idea that our intellects are able to know right. and the uh sunni scholars insisting that we cannot yeah. especially in one of the the sunnis was really quite salafi in in orientation actually so i've found that very interesting. I finally put an end to it because I had to get back and go to bed. I was leaving at three in the morning, but it could have just gone on and on and on. I, I just found it fascinating though, that they could, that this is a very important distinction. It's something that for, it's only gonna be of significance to scholars, of course, right? To the ulama, but for an ibadi alim, to insist that Islam is maqul, right? <laughs> At least on theology. Interestingly enough, on matters of law, yeah. they say, we just have to accept. We don't know the difference between right and wrong. We just have to accept what God commands. Mm -hmm. But on matters of theology, they insist on the efficacy of human intellect. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this has become, this is a very important part of the Abadi scholars self-perception that we are rational right. and if only everybody else would open their minds <laughs> they could be convinced too <laughs> well thank you so much valerie this has really been um a a sort of wonderful wide-ranging discussion on uh, so many dimensions of ibadism i don't know faisal if you'd like to add anything to that uh, so Faisal is um, shaking his head just so that the uh, audience is <laughs> understanding what's going on because they'll only be able to see people who are speaking. I guess I would love to conclude by first thanking Valerie for uh, really illuminating hour and a half uh, of reflections on the developments within uh, Ibadism. Uh, I'm just going to briefly uh, sort of mention what's going to come up in two weeks' time. So we're having fortnightly presentations. So just as we conclude, I wanted to mention that we're having Fadi Bardawil and Nadia Abu Ali talking about the left in Islamic political thought. So Fadi will be talking about a nation, class and community. And uh, Nadia will be speaking on, uh, talking about speaking on is, is the heart uh, for the East and reason for the West. So uh, a very different sort of we're trying to do sort of um, pre-modern and then modern, then pre-modern, modern. modern. Um, but of course, Valerie, uh, your own presentation covered just the whole swathe of uh, <laughs> history. So we, we got a, a, a lucky break this week, shall we say. 
So just wanted to conclude again by thanking you for uh, giving your time, illuminating us, um, and thanking all the participants this week who are attending from around the world and uh, looking forward to seeing you in two weeks' time. But with that, I, I'll bring uh, proceedings to a close for this evening. Thanks again, Valerie. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was great.